0: Our sermon passage this morning is Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 18b through verse 26. Uh, We're just finishing up the last little phrase in uh, verse 18 and then continuing on to verse 26. Uh, But our scripture reading prior to our sermon passage is Philippians 3, verses 7 to 11. As you'll see, I believe, as we read both of these, uh, one (coughs) leading into the other, you'll see how they, they tie together, how uh, chapter 3, verses 7 to 11 informs uh, how we understand what Paul is saying in chapter 1, uh, verses 18b to 26. So again, our scripture reading is Philippians 3, 7 to 11. Our sermon passage is Philippians one 18b to 26. And brothers and sisters, I remind you once again that this is the very word of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. But please give it your full attention. Paul writes in Philippians 3, verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And now turning, if you will, to Philippians 1.18b-26. to This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would teach us to have this same mind. That to live as a Christian is Christ. And that to die is gain. But we pray that by your Spirit we would understand what this means. So please guide us now as your word is preached. Guide the one who preaches and guide those who hear. And help us all, dear Lord, to glorify you as we hear your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you may very well remember from last week's passage that Paul told the Philippian saints there that despite the fact that there were some who preached Christ in order... Further to afflict Paul in his imprisonment, he rejoiced in the fact that Christ was being preached. It didn't bother him that those brothers were trying to persecute him by preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. He was just happy to know that Christ was being proclaimed. And now, in this morning's passage, he tells the Philippians that he will. Rejoice into the future. He rejoiced in the fact that those rivals were preaching Christ and that those who uh, were with him were preaching Christ. But he rejoices into the future, even despite the fact that the future for him at this point is exceedingly uncertain. Because you see, Paul faces the prospect that his appeal to Caesar, to to none other than, than Nero, might end in a death sentence. And so Paul's words regarding his death in these verses aren't just for dramatic effect. Paul rejoices now despite his less than optimal circumstances, and he will rejoice on into the future despite the fact that a painful death is on the horizon, at least potentially. It's there. And that indicates what one commentator described as Paul's ongoing commitment to rejoice. Now, how many of you have said to yourself, I hereby am committing this day on into the future to rejoice? I'm going to rejoice not trying to discredit you. If some of you have, please don't be offended by what I'm about to say next. But I doubt that many of us have. I can't say that I have. And and so I'm not setting myself up as some sort of great example. But Paul is saying that he here here is, is committed to rejoicing. He's going to rejoice no matter what happens to him. He's not just speaking optimistically about his ability to rejoice in the future despite dire circumstances. He is speaking out of his commitment to rejoice no matter what. No matter what happens, no matter what comes his way. Well, you know this. You know it because you live in this world. You, you know it because you, you hear the kinds of things that happen, uh, go on, or said in popular culture. You may even know it because these kinds of things have come out of your own mouths. But these days, rather than having a commitment to rejoice no matter what, people seem to have a commitment to sigh and to groan, to complain. But Paul will rejoice, for, as he says in verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now there's something to, to note here, and quite honestly, I did not know this uh, until studying up on this passage, going through the commentaries. I didn't identify this. But verse 19 contains a composite quotation from the Greek Old Testament version of the book of Job. So some of you have heard the term the Septuagint. the Greek Old Testament uh, uh, that the the, the Hebrews in Paul's day, the Jewish people in Paul's day, used. That That was their Old Testament, their Bible. And this verse contains two separate quotations from the book of Job. The first part of the quotation, for I know that, it's found only four times in the Greek Old Testament. And one of those times it's found in Job chapter 19, verse 25. Now, some of you, you may know what this verse is. You may remember it from last year when we went through it. You may have memorized this verse. This is the one verse that most people who know any verses from the book of Job know. This, is, uh, this comes from that. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that the last He will stand upon the earth. For I know. That, that, the, the, the Greek there in Paul's letter in Philippians is identical to the Greek in the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament version of of the book of Job. Now, the overall verse is slightly different than what we have just read. If you were to translate from the Greek and put it into English, it would come out somewhat differently than what we read in the ESV or other English translations, and that's because they're primarily based upon uh, the the Hebrew uh, text of the Old Testament. But those first three words, for I know, those are identical. Now this could just be chalked up to coincidence. It might just, for I know, that's a very, fairly common phrase. Uh, so it could be chalked up to coincidence, for, uh, but for the fact that Paul then quotes from a different passage uh, in Job. Job chapter 13, verse 16, which reads in the ESV, This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Now the phrase, this will be my salvation, in the Greek version of Job, is identical to what Paul writes in verse 19, which is translated in the ESV, this will turn out for my deliverance. The word salvation there in uh, the book of Job, the Greek version of the book of Job, is the same as uh, the Greek word in Paul's letter here to the Philippians in verse 19. A more literal rendering of the word order in verse 19 of our passage in Philippians would be, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You see, the ESV, it inverts some of the word order there. But if you just follow the Greek word order, that's about the way it goes. And so what you see is these two phrases, one from Job 19, verse 25, one from Job 13, verse 16, they're actually just mashed up together right after one flows into the other in verse 19 of the book. And so these two phrases that Paul uses at the beginning of verse 19, quoting from two different passages in Job is not by mistake. It's not by accident. not coincidence. One commentator writes, the proximity of the two citations from Job confirms Paul is intentional in this citation. Paul meant to quote from these two verses. He intended for his readers to know that he's quoting from the the book of Job. And, and certainly they would know uh, Job 19, verse 25, and, and uh, very likely they would know the other verse as well. But what purpose could Paul have had in quoting from these two passages from Job? Well, I think we can imagine this if you've read the book of Acts. You know that Paul has suffered uh, immensely in his life. It would have been very easy for Paul to identify with Job in his sufferings. Paul, too, had suffered profoundly in his life. And the book of Job would have been a great source of comfort for Paul in the midst of the hardships that he encountered in those missionary days. And the particular passages that Paul chose to quote from are they're taken from sections of the book of Job in which Job is making bold declarations to the three friends about his hope of meeting with God. He's telling the three friends, for I know that my Redeemer lives. But then he says in chapter 19, verse 26, right after he said that about I know that my Redeemer lives, he says, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Job is anticipating an audience with God. In chapter 13, verse 15 of the book of Job, right before the verse Paul quotes in our passage, Job says, though he slay me, meaning God, though God slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job is anticipating an audience with Almighty God, the supreme ruler of the universe. But what is Paul anticipating? Why is Paul in prison? Back in Jerusalem when this dis disputation arose, what did he do? He he appealed to Caesar. He laid claim to his Roman citizenship and the right that he had as a Roman citizen to take his case and plead it before Nero. Now compared to the one with whom Job was hoping to have an audience, Paul's anticipated audience with the Roman emperor Nero was actually much less formidable when you think about it. The ruler of the entire universe, or the ruler of the Roman Empire. Job knew that he was in the right, and so he demanded on numerous occasions to meet with God face to face. And when Job finally did meet with God, God swiftly put Job in his place. But at the same time, he ensured that Job understood that he still belonged to God. That God truly was his salvation. Now, Paul doesn't have this desire to have an audience with Nero in the hopes that the Roman Emperor will prove to be his salvation. That's not what Paul is saying there in in, uh, verse 19. Turn out for my deliverance, that this will turn out for my salvation. Paul wants to meet with Nero in the full expectation that he will be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to Nero. We're going to get to how we know this, how we can be certain of this in a few moments. Paul hopes to present Nero with the only way of salvation, not to receive salvation or deliverance or being set free from prison from Nero. He wants an audience with Caesar for the purpose of preaching the gospel to Caesar. There's no reason to think that Paul won't do what he has always done when he has had an audience of any sort. He's preached the gospel. And so when Paul says in verse 19 that through the prayers of the Philippian saints and the help of the Holy Spirit, this will turn out for his deliverance, literally his salvation, he isn't looking to Nero as his savior. He is speaking about salvation through Christ's death. Paul knows, as he says in Galatians 2.20, that he has been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. No matter what happens to Paul, he knows that this will turn out for his salvation. And so he writes in verse 20, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul understands his calling to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And very likely in this verse, he is making an indirect reference to his hope to preach the gospel to the emperor. He says that it is his eager expectation and hope that he will not be ashamed. And then he goes on to say, but that, that with full courage now as always. The word translated full courage. Not Every time that it's found in the New Testament, but very often in the New Testament is used to refer to plain or open speech, to boldness in speaking. And so for instance, Jesus in John chapter 18 verse 20 says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. It's used of Paul by Luke at the end of uh, the book of Acts where Luke writes in Acts 28:31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And Paul uses the word two times, asking for prayer for himself in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20, where he writes there, to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to to speak, both of those uses of the word boldly, that's talking about this open speaking, this open proclamation of the good news. Now, it's true that in our passage in Philippians, the word that's translated full courage is not accompanied in verse 20 by any words related to preaching or proclaiming the gospel. And in the passage that we have before us today, verses 18b to verse 26, Paul nowhere in those verses talks about his proclamation of the gospel. However, the immediate verses preceding our passage this morning are all about the proclamation of the gospel. The brothers have been encouraged by Paul's willingness to preach the gospel, and so they have been proclaiming it as well. And Paul is even more encouraged to do so when he gains an audience with the emperor. And so this is the reason that we can can trust, we can can speak with certainty about the fact that when Paul gives thanks to these uh, brothers and sisters for their prayers. And when he talks about having uh, courage and, and boldness, that he's speaking about his audience with the emperor. And because of his commitment to, to preaching the good news, no matter what the circumstances, he expresses his hope that Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. And that leads to these unforgettable words in verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now if you pull this verse out of its context, it could be easily taken to mean that Paul is looking forward to death as a form of escape from his suffering. But the verses that follow, and especially verses 25 and 26, make it clear that Paul here is not promoting any form of escapism. The verse can be easily construed that way. That death is to be looked forward to as an escape from present suffering or sorrow. Not because the passage is ambiguous. Paul in this passage is not talking about some some hope that that someone or he himself will will take his life and, and end his misery, put him out of his sorrow and suffering. It's not because the passage is ambiguous. It's because we live in a culture of death where death is often seen as the solution to a problem. The problem is not with Paul. The problem is with his interpreters with those who are trying to understand what he says. A culture of death promotes and advances the idea that death is a good thing. And so some of Paul's interpreters throughout the years, over the ages, they have thought that Paul had imbibed some sort of, of stoic understanding of, of suicide. Suicide is noble and it'll take his own life. They read this passage and that's how they understand it. We Christians... We can Christianize this idea to the point that even something like suicide, which is really self-murder, can seem like a good thing. If I take my life, it will end my sorrows, and I'll be with Jesus, the thinking might go for some Christians. This is not what Paul is talking about here. Similarly, we can attempt to justify abortion by saying that it is the compassionate choice in the case of a child that might have a debilitating birth defect, or even in the case of a child who's unwanted and grows up in an unloving home. Isn't it compassionate? We we might be tempted to think to, to want that baby not to have to suffer. We can convince ourselves that it would be better for that unborn child to die and be with Jesus than to live a miserable life. And euthanasia can be similarly construed. I was recently privy to a conversation in which two people surprised nobody in this church don't worry just out in the wider world who said you know when things get toward the end and and things aren't looking too good for me I'm going to move to Oregon and the the indication there was I'm going to go there and I can make sure that my life is uh, put out of my misery all of this is simply the permeation into our thinking of the culture of death in which we live this is not biblical thinking not at all. Now I, I know, I I, I understand, I, I do think I get it. That situations in life can sometimes become so difficult, so painful, so sorrowful, so challenging, that you want nothing more than to go and to be with Jesus and you just want to give up. Throw in the towel. I know, and I understand that, and I, and I know from conversation with, with with people. Again, no one here necessarily, but people in the wider world that when you get up in age and the aches and the pains and the chronic illnesses and, and all of those struggles that are attendant with it, it becomes very attractive to want to escape all of that and to get away from it. Most definitely the addictions that, that so many people face in our society they come out of this idea, I've got to escape, I've got to get away from this, I can't deal with this, I don't want to suffer anymore. And so you can see that the drugs and alcohol abuse, these are just a form of, of, of slow and, and steady and subtle suicide. This is not an option in the Bible. The Bible makes it clear that death is one of our enemies... Death is not to be celebrated, it is to be lamented. When Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, what he means is that by faith in Christ, he is in Christ. He possesses Christ. If he continues living, it is Christ who lives in him, as he says in the aforementioned Galatians 2.20. As he will say later on in chapter 3, verse 8, which we read earlier, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He's already gained Christ, even as he has happily lost everything else. As one commentator put it, death is not gain in the sense of escape, but in the sense of gaining more of Christ who is already our life and entering into full participation in his resurrection. Don't think of getting to heaven in terms of getting away from all your earthly problems. Think of getting to heaven as as getting more of Jesus Christ. Of seeing Him face to face. Yes, your sorrows will end, but even better than that, you'll get to see Jesus. You'll get to look at Him in the eyes. You'll get to witness the, the scars in His hands, the wounds in His feet, that he suffered for you so that you could be with him there. You'll get to see those things. Well, if Paul dies, the gain, that he, uh, the, the gain is that he gets more Christ. As he says in verse 23, that to depart and be with Christ is far better. He can look forward to a future with Christ after death only because he can say in the present, to live is Christ. To live is Christ right now. And he makes it clear that he doesn't look forward to death as an escape from the present. In verses 22 and and following, he says there, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Whether in life or in death, Paul is going to be productive in life. He's going to keep on doing what he's been doing. It isn't that Paul is a workaholic. He just understands that as long as he can draw breath, he's going to use that breath to tell other people about Jesus. He continues on in verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He makes his desire known to the Philippians, as he no doubt has made it known to the Lord. Being with the Lord is far better, but not because of the sufferings in this world. Even if it were possible for you to live your best life now, as I, I think somebody along the way has said, right? Live your best life now. Have it now. Which is basically saying you can get heaven right here and now on this earth. You don't need it in the next life. If it were possible to live your best life now, even that best life would pale in comparison to the life that you will have when you are with Jesus. I have no doubt that Paul would have said the same thing even if he were living in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall if the Garden of Eden didn't have Jesus Christ in it. If that were the case, he would still say that it is far better to depart from that paradise so that he could be with his Lord. But the reality is that he lived in a fallen, sin-filled world. And so, as he says in verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. It's not because he lives in a a sin-filled world that he needs to get out of that sin-filled world. It's because he lives in a sin-filled world that he needs to stay there. He needs to stay there so that he can be of service to the Philippians and presumably to other brothers and sisters. Verse 24 gives a sense of the concern that Paul has for the Philippians, both a general concern for them based on his deep love and affection for them, but also a specific concern for them because of the disagreements that have arisen in the Philippian church. He's he's concerned. He doesn't want this church to blow up. And so if he were allowed to choose to live or die, his choice would be to live so that he could be of service to them. And he says as much in verses 25 and 26, the last two verses of our passage this morning. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And we've already said that Paul is, is open to the fact that he might, his life might end uh, shortly after his meeting with Nero. If, but, but in these last two verses of our passage this morning, Paul speaks with a certainty regarding what is going to happen to him. He knows that he's in a dangerous position. He knows that because he's requested an audience with a very powerful man who is very much at odds with Christianity, that he's put his life in danger, as many other Christians' lives are in danger in, in Rome and in the empire. But Paul knows, he says, that he will remain and will continue with the Philippians. He says in chapter 2, verse 24, that he trusts in the Lord that shor- shortly I myself will come also to the Philippians. He, he knows. And every time that Paul uses this word, know, and he uses it some 140 times in his letters, But he says that I know, it's not a possibility. It's a certainty Paul knows that he is going to be set free from his uh, in- imprisonment. We're not given the details of that. We don't, we don't know exactly. The, the, the book of Acts ends with Paul sitting under house arrest, uh, proclaiming Christ to everybody who comes uh, through the doors of the house where he is uh, imprisoned. But Paul believes that he's going to go and see the Philippians again. Though Nero has the power of the sword, he has the authority to take Paul's life, resulting in Paul being face-to-face with Jesus, Paul knows that that will not happen. God has shown Paul that he will continue on. And it is quite possible, even though there's no record of it, that Paul did indeed return to Philippi to see his brothers and sisters there. That's what he indicates will happen at the end end of verse 26. That he's going to come to them again. Paul's certain hope of eternal life with Christ after his death is what fuels him while living in a fallen world apart from the physical presence of Jesus Christ. He has Christ with him. Just not physically, not not bodily. He knows that even though Christ is not present with him physically, Christ is still truly present with him spiritually. Spiritually. And so though he desires to depart and be with Christ, it's necessary that Paul remain physically present for the sake of the Philippians. In other words, like like Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prays that the cup is taken from him, he prays to his Father, please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's essentially what Paul is saying here. His desire is to go and to be with the Lord. He wants to be with Jesus. He's ready to go home. He's ready to see Jesus face to face. But he's essentially saying in these verses, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he's convinced that God will have him with the Philippians, whether bodily, uh, presently, or or whether through through correspondence by, by letters, He's convinced that God is going to have him there for the foreseeable future. Paul is content. Whether he lives or dies, he does not promote death as the answer to his suffering. He doesn't think this way. And you and I, we're not permitted to think this way either. Certainly not based upon this verse or anything that Paul has written in his letters. Not to think in terms of death being the answer to the problems that we have. Christ Jesus is the answer to the problems that we have. And He is the answer right now, not just when you get to be with the Lord in heaven. He's the answer right now. Paul is very clear in this passage that he has everything that he needs to continue on living in this life, He's got all that He needs. He doesn't need anything else. And so, as we've already said, he's content whether he lives or he dies. And even though death is his enemy, and Paul, you know, Paul is the one who says that the last enemy is death. Even though death is his enemy, he does not fear death because by death he will be ushered into the presence of Christ whenever for Paul at this point when he's writing this letter, whenever that will be for him. Death is is just an instrument. And so we can further conclude from this passage that even our enemies are turned by God into our servants (coughs) as God repurposes them to work for us. Paul's enemy is death. But he understands that by death he will get to be with the Lord. Because Jesus Christ died for you, therefore you ought to strive to live for him. Even if, as unlikely as it may seem to you now, your living for Christ means that you may be imprisoned or that you may die. To use a current example of which we, for which we pray every single week, and no doubt many of you pray very frequently in your homes. It's doubtful. That Andrew Brunson realized 20 years ago when he went to to Turkey to be a missionary there that, that 20 years later he was going to end up in prison. Persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ. We do not know what is going to happen to us in 20 years. Some of us no doubt will go on to be with the Lord. But many of us are young for whom 20 years is just a drop in the bucket. We don't know what the Lord is going to call us to do. We don't know what the Lord and His sovereign plan is going to cause us to go through. But of this we can be certain. That whether you live or whether you die, you are in Christ Jesus and He is in you. Through Christ's life and death, for you to live is Christ. And for you to die is gain. For you to die means that you get even more of Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is the good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we know that some, even in this room, some look to death as... A potential answer to many of their problems. But we know that we, we often look to death in the sense that it will bring us to Christ Jesus. We also know, dear Lord, that there are those here who fear death. Who, who, for whom death makes them very anxious. They worry about what might happen to them. For both, dear Lord, we pray that you would give them assurance. We pray that you would calm their souls. We pray that this passage passage in the book of Philippians, a portion of your word, that you would use it to give us the knowledge that Jesus Christ has died for us. Therefore, we will live in this life and in the next. Lord, we pray for those who may be struggling and on the verge of giving up hope that you would sustain them we pray for those uh, whose time may be short but Lord we, don't, we all know that we don't know the day or the hour when you will take us home and so we pray that we could have the same mind as, as the Apostle Paul to live as Christ to die is gain Help us, dear Lord, to be content in life or in death. Gracious God, we pray for your blessings upon us now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.